0: I'm going to begin by reading from Luke, Luke's gospel chapter 24 says this, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Church family, let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for this day and what it represents. I thank you for this celebration of the resurrection of the Son of God and his victory over death and darkness and sin and evil. And God, I thank you that we can gather together like this and make a a joyful noise and we can celebrate and we can party because we know that Jesus' death and resurrection means that our sins are forgiven. God, I ask and pray during these next few minutes that you would give each and every one of us open hearts and receptive hearts to hear the truth from your word. And God, I pray you would help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth from your word. And I pray you'd give us the ability to celebrate and party. And we pray all of this in the resurrected name of Jesus, our Savior. And everyone said, amen. Let me ask you a question. Whose team are you on? Who are you united with? There are a few things happening in our culture right now where I see people taking all sorts of sides and people uh, picking their teams. March Madness is in full swing. How many of you are college basketball fans? How many of you are college basketball fans who are still happy? (laughs) Not very many of you. All over, uh, everywhere I go, go to the store, I see people wearing t-shirts or hats or having flags or they're, they're uniting themselves with a particular team. And so when your team wins, you, you celebrate. There's great joy and delight by being united with that team. And when your team loses, which apparently everyone here has done, you are crushed in agony and defeat along with your team. Last night, the state of Washington had the, the, the Democratic caucuses, and there's the, the election, the political season is in full swing, and everywhere I go, I see people with bumper stickers on their cars or yard signs or on their Facebook. They're changing their, their, their profile pictures, uniting themselves to a particular politician or a po- particular political party saying, this is whose team I'm on. This weekend, there's a, a movie that came out, Batman versus Superman, and Facebook asked me to change my profile picture to let them know whose team I was on, as if there was any question. <laughs> would never align myself with that super guy. <laughs> whose team are you on? What alliances and allegiances and affiliations do you have? Jesus made the claim that the most important allegiance you will ever make in your entire life is with him. That being united with him, being yoked up with him, being aligned with him is more important than any political affiliation, than certainly any sports affiliation, even more important than even family affiliations. Jesus said, if you are united with me, if you're linked up with me, if you're united with me through faith, I can actually make sure that your sins are forgiven and you will experience eternal life. That's a bold claim. It's a radical claim. The Christian faith, make no mistake, it's a radical, radical claim. The Christian faith is not about how you can be a good person or how you can experience some semblance of a better life now, although there are many benefits to following God. The the Christian claim is as radical as this, that that Jesus Christ was killed, and on the third day, he rose from the dead, and all who unite themselves, all who say, I am on Team Jesus, could experience that eternal life that he's promised. There's an author, uh, a man who was an investigator. He was a criminal investigator for a number of years, and he began to study. He was an atheist, he was a skeptic, and he began to study the claims of the Bible, and he began to study in particular the claims, the the historical evidence that the resurrection happened. His name's J. Warner Wallace, and this is what he says. He says, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, it absolutely is meaningless and useless if what Christian, the Christian claim is, is uh, if it's false. And if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so I hope you hear that today, that what I'm about to say to you and what we're going to discuss today is either of no importance whatsoever, and frankly, this is a colossal waste of your time being here or it's of infinite, of eternal value and importance. And you should really take seriously these claims. Let me start by just talking about being united with Jesus in a life like his. Think about the life that, that Jesus lived. I want you to see a few things. Number one, that Jesus lived a truly unique life. There has never been anyone in the history of the world that has lived a life like Jesus. Jesus went around during his ministry teaching the truths of God, teaching the scriptures. And people would say, this man teaches not like the other ones do. This man teaches with authority. He teaches with passion. Jesus went around feeding people and taking care of the impoverished and standing up against those who were in power, positions of religious and political power, and who were using that power to oppress others. Jesus boldly stood up against them. Jesus would would perform miracles and healings. Even people who are skeptics, who don't believe the claims of Jesus, they, they know that Jesus was known throughout the ancient world as being a worker of miracles. And Jesus, what's really remarkable about Jesus' life, what's really unique is that he lived a life without sin. Jesus never did anything contrary to God's will. Jesus never broke God's law, not even once. And I know that's a tough claim to believe, but, but think about this. As Jesus was being stretched out on the Roman cross and they were pounding nails through his hands and through his feet, what was the prayer that Jesus prayed? Father, please strike them with lightning bolts or Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How many of us would be much more likely to pray that first prayer? Jesus as he was being executed, prayed for his murderers. Father, forgive them. Jesus lived a truly unique life. And even the greatest skeptic would would acknowledge that because, because we don't write down the names of people in history books who didn't live a unique life. Jesus had a unique life. Jesus died a death of a common criminal. Because of how Jesus lived his life, he he made the rulers and the authorities nervous. He shook up the power systems. He rattled a few cages. And so the Jewish religious leaders and the, the, the Roman political leaders conspired to put him to death. And so Jesus died the death of a common criminal. Jesus was crucified on a cross. And it could be said from one perspective that there's nothing really remarkable about that. Do you know how many people died on Roman crosses? A lot, The Romans were quite good at executing people. It was one of the things they excelled at as a culture, fear-based, state-sponsored terror, saying not only are we going to kill this person, but we're going to put him up in front of everyone so that nobody else is going to get any ideas about trying what this person did. And so Jesus, after living this unique life and after rattling the cages of those in power and authority, he died the death of a common criminal. And it could be said from a human perspective, there was nothing that remarkable about his death. Then number three, something happened. Something happened. Something happened. People have been arguing about what happened now for 2,000 years. Something remarkable happened in the life and in the story of Jesus. You know, Jesus actually told people ahead of time that he would rise again. What I find so uh, humorous is that his own disciples didn't get it, but the religious leaders and the political leaders, they did. This is from Matthew's gospel, chapter 27. This is the day after Jesus was crucified, the chief priests and the Pharisees, that's the, that's the Jewish religious leaders, gathered before Pilate, that's the Roman political governor, and they said, sir, we remember how that imposter Oh, hear that word? That imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. I think they were genuinely fearful. I think they were afraid that something was gonna happen. They're they're afraid that the disciples are gonna go steal Jesus' body and try to convince everyone that he rose from the dead. It's particularly funny because the disciples had no such plan. Read the gospel. They're, at this point point in the story, they're scared out of their minds, hiding. He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, "'You have a guard of soldiers.'" Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. A guard of Roman soldiers was, was four trained warriors, and they would operate in shifts of four, four soldiers replacing the four, so that there was never a moment that that guard wasn't on duty. Something happened. Something took place that quite literally changed the course of human history. Something happened nearly 2,000 years ago that, that shook up everything. The whole known world changed. And people have offered all sorts of explanations. The Christian claim is that Jesus was raised from the dead. But people say, well, people, people don't just rise from the dead. To which Christians would say, exactly, that's why, that's why it's so remarkable. Well, he couldn't have raised from the dead because people don't rise from the dead. And so different theories have been offered, different alternate explanations I'll give you a few of them briefly. One would be the myth theory. The idea that nothing happened. It's just that over time, over hundreds and even thousands of years, this myth has grown that that Jesus rose from the dead. Nothing really happened, but, but, but over time, the story just grew. The only problem with that is that All of recorded history, all of antiquity would disagree with that. From the very, very, very first days, Christians were claiming Jesus is raised from the dead. It is not something that came much later. It is not something that happened uh, decades or centuries later. It happened right then and there. There's a scholar named William Lane Craig who says it this way. When the disciples began to preach the resurrection in Jerusalem and people responded, and when religious authorities stood helplessly by, the tomb must have been empty. The simple fact that the Christian fellowship founded on belief in Jesus' resurrection came into existence and flourished in the very city where he was executed and buried is powerful evidence for the historicity of the empty tomb. Notice that Dr. Craig is not even saying yet that Jesus was raised from the dead, just that the tomb was empty. Because even if you went 50 years later, 100 years later and said, well, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Why are these people making up this story? Let's go check out his tomb. See, there he is but there is no such place where you can go. The tomb is seriously empty, folks. The tomb is empty. Something else happened. A second theory that sometimes people say is the swoon theory, that Jesus on the cross didn't really die. He just swooned meaning he was flogged and beaten within an inch of his life by Roman soldiers. They placed a crown of thorns on his head, uh, a tremendous amount of blood loss. He was crucified, nailed to a Roman cross, hung there for the better part of an entire day. And after all of that, he passed out, but he was, was it like Miracle Max and Princess Bride says, you know, mostly dead, and then they put him in heavy claws. They laid him on a rock inside of a cave and they left him there for a few days and then after a few days he kind of you know, got up and rubbed the sleep out of his eyes and said, oh that was awful and unwrapped himself, rolled a giant stone out of the way, overpowered a guard of four trained Roman soldiers. If you believe the swoon theory, you might as well believe in the resurrection because that's just as miraculous. Besides, the Romans were really good at killing people. Like they, like, ah, they excelled at it very good at killing people. No, Jesus did not swoon. He was put to death, and the gospel writers make sure time and time again to point out that they stabbed him in the side with a spear, and blood and water flowed, which is a sign that he had indeed passed away. He was dead. A third theory, which might be new to some of you uh, in in our culture in particular, but in other parts of the world is not that uncommon, is the twin brother theory, that Jesus had a twin brother. Now, now, You know, there was one brother that died on the cross, and then three days later, the other brother appeared. It's like that movie, um, The Prestige, right? With uh, Christian Bale, like there's two twins. If you haven't seen it, I just ruined for you. I'm not sorry. It's an old movie, like catch up, okay? (laughs) The twin brother theory, that that one brother was crucified, and then like a magic trick, ta-da, the other one has now reappeared. Now that sounds unusual to many of us, but early on after the resurrection of Jesus, there was a group called the Gnostics that started to put this theory forward. And of uh, of the other group that picked it up shortly thereafter is uh, adherence to Islam. The prophet Muhammad wrote this in the Quran in chapter 4. He actually says, in fact, they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it appeared to them as if they did. So many of our Muslim friends and neighbors, depending on which teachers they're listening to, might actually believe in the twin brother theory. Let me just say this has absolutely no historical credibility to it. There's nothing in all of history that would, that would show near, near the time of the resurrection of Jesus that this was in fact true. And if it was true, then Jesus is a great liar. And he should not be followed as a prophet, much less as a savior. The fourth theory is the group hallucination theory. This one was popular in the late 60s, I hear. Uh, that Jesus' followers just imagined. It was they were brought on by stress. They just imagined that they saw Jesus. Here's the problem. Medical science would tell us that hallucination is most commonly a very private event. And there are some very rare occasions where a group of people all together at one time have a shared hallucinatory experience, but it's usually brought on by a leader standing up and it's often uh, induced by some sort of chemical uh, drug, uh, drug-induced hallucination. Here's the Here's the problem. The Bible consistently records that Jesus appeared as many as 10 or 12 times to different groups of disciples. The Apostle Paul says at one point that there are 500 people who saw Jesus after he was resurrected. And the Apostle Paul, when he was writing, he says, many of them are still alive. Go talk to them, go ask them. Besides, people who have hallucinations aren't usually that good at convincing hundreds, thousands of millions of people at following them in that. And besides, what's more, is the people who would have been supposedly having these hallucinations, they weren't even looking for Jesus. They were despondent. They were sorrowful. They were sitting alone, crying about the fact that this leader that they had united themselves with, linked themselves up with, was now dead, buried, and gone. C.S. Lewis, great, great author, has a great line on this. He says, any theory of hallucination breaks down on the fact and if it is invention, it is the oddest invention that entered the, ever entered the mind of man, that on three separate occasions, this hallucination was not immediately recognized as Jesus. The hallucination theory would, take, would stretch, stretch the bounds of credibility. Number five, the last one, is the stolen body theory. That this was, the, this was the first theory that was put forward by the religious leaders of the day. The disciples have stolen the body. This is the one that is most commonly believed still by skeptics to this day that Jesus did not in fact rise from the dead but that his body was stolen. But, but let me answer that by, by pointing you to the character of these disciples. What did the disciples do on the night that Jesus was arrested? They fled. They tucked tail and ran. It says that one of the disciples was running so fast that when one of the soldiers reached out to grab him, his clothes ripped off and he ran away in the night naked. Do you think... That this ragtag disorganized band of fishermen is going to then suddenly regroup and say, you know what, I've got a great idea. Let's conspire together, let's go to the tomb, let's overpower the trained Roman guards, let's steal Jesus' body, and then we'll hold on to this lie for our entire lives and we'll all go to our deaths knowing that we're perpetuating a lie. Does that seem in keeping with the character of the disciples that we've met? I remember reading, there's a man named Chuck Colson who, uh, he went to prison for a while uh, because of his association with the Nixon administration during the Watergate scandal. And he said for a little while, everyone was really trying to get their stories together. How are we going to lie our way out of this, this scandal? And he said that he was watching tough guys, military, Marines, tough men, just crumble when the pressure came. Every man for himself, everyone ran every different direction. All the stories fell apart. And Chuck Colson said, that's why I believe that the disciples couldn't have done this because they, when the pressure came, they all went to their deaths, quite literally went to their deaths, claiming that Jesus was in fact alive. And I'll give you one more reason why the stolen body theory doesn't make any sense is because the star witnesses, the, the people who were put forward as the first ones to see the empty tomb and the first ones to see the risen Jesus were women. I love the gospel of Jesus because Jesus uh, gives uh, such a particular beauty and dignity and respect to women. In this time in the ancient world, a woman, in much of the ancient world, a woman's testimony was not admissible in a court of law. They were not considered to be valid witnesses. And yet, who are the first witnesses to the resurrection? A group of ladies. Isn't that remarkable? If you were gonna concoct a stolen body theory, you would not entrust the position of star witness to a bunch of ladies. Jesus does. Listen, all of these other theories, I understand why people would be skeptical because dead people don't just rise from the dead. But let me tell you this, that I am convinced, and there are millions, even billions of people around the world today who are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the only thing that makes any sense at all is that Jesus is in fact alive. He's not dead anymore, but God performed a miracle and Jesus, though he was truly dead, not mostly dead, all the way dead, is not dead anymore. He rules and reigns and is alive forevermore. And if that is the case, then everything changes. If that's the case, everything changes. Like I said, this can't be of moderate importance. It's either a false, abominable lie, or it's the most important thing you've ever heard. Like I said at the beginning, it it can't be of modern importance. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The Apostle Paul knew this. He said, I'm putting all of the eggs proverbial into the basket of the resurrection. If Jesus hasn't been raised, my friends, this is a colossal waste of your time this morning and I apologize on behalf of whoever brought you. But if Jesus has been raised... If Jesus has been raised, well, it changes everything. The apostle Paul even says, we're even found to be misrepresenting God. We're lying about God. We're breaking the commandment that talks about taking the name of the Lord in vain because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. My friends, the dead are raised and Jesus is proof of it. And because he's alive, this means something for us. This means that we're given this opportunity to be united with him, to be on team Jesus, to say, I just got dealt the winningest hand ever. I just got dealt five aces, and so I'm going to push all my chips into the middle of the table on Jesus. That was a poker joke. You'll get that on your way home. There's only four, there's only four aces in a deck of cards. Okay, never mind. You have to explain it. Listen, here's what it means to be united with Jesus. Here's what it means to be united with him. It means, it means a few things. The first thing it means is it means to be united with him in his earthly life. The Bible would say that before a person comes to faith in Jesus, that their state is spiritually dead, that our spirits, the, the, the immaterial part of us, is actually dead but when we come to an understanding of of what Jesus has done and who he is and and that he can forgive our sins, the Bible says that God almost like flips a light switch on and we go from a status of spiritually dead to being alive and that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, actually comes and takes up residence in our bodies and we begin to have different thoughts. We begin to have different desires. We begin to live our lives differently, that being united with Christ means that our lives just start to look more like his. His that we start to be able to love people better. We start to be able to be more forgiving. We start to be able to be more generous. We start wanting to serve the poor and clothe the naked and feed the hungry. Our lives start to look more like Jesus. We start to even be able to think about loving not just our friends, but even our enemies like Jesus did. When, When God does a work in us, our earthly lives change. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He says, I am the door If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. That language of pasture is is like that of a sheep being safe, being well-fed, being cared for. If you're united with Jesus, if if you've entered through him, the door that is Jesus, then your life looks different. He says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it, what's the word? Abundantly. Abundantly, that life with Jesus, being united to his life is more than just getting by, it's thriving. Jesus also said in Matthew 11, speaking to the crowds, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest and then he uses this phrase, take my yoke upon you. A yoke is something that was used to hook up two different oxen together so that they could, you know, pull a cart or pull a plow and work together. And oftentimes you would yoke up a stronger oxen with a weaker oxen so the stronger one could lead the weaker. What Jesus is saying is, hey, come be united with me. Let's team up on this and learn from me. Jesus says, I'm going to teach you. I'm going I'm to drag you along is what Jesus is saying. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How many of you who have been Christians for any length of time would say that you are thankful to see the way that Jesus has changed your life because of being united with him? Show of hands, how many of you are thankful for that? That's, what, that's the first part of what it means to have this Christ life. We've, we've been united with him and then he does a miracle inside of us and starts to change us. But it gets better. Number two, being united with him means not just being united with his earthly life, but united with his resurrection. Here's where the news starts to get really amazing. See, death is the great equalizer. One out of one, all of humanity, everyone has died except for Jesus. Death is a tragedy. Death is inescapable. There are many people, as I'm looking out across this room right now, whose family members I've performed funerals for. We're, we're all... Apart from the return of Christ, we're all going to face death at one point. But Jesus makes some staggering, some remarkable, some mind-blowing claims about death and his ability to conquer over it. John six forty, for example, he says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What Jesus is saying is, even when you die, I'm gonna return one day, and on that last day, I'm gonna raise you up resurrection bodies. John chapter 11, 25 through 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He's speaking to Martha here, whose, whose brother Lazarus has just died. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Sound City Bible Church, do you believe this? That death doesn't get the last word. Death doesn't get to have the final word in the story because we have a Savior who conquered over death. And he says that all who believe in me, one day, even if you die, one day you'll rise again. There's a a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul just kind of loses his mind talking about the new resurrection bodies that we're going to get. By the way, if you have like a Looney Tunes image of kind of see-through and sitting on a cloud playing a harp, erase that from your memory. The Bible promises that we will be raised physically, made perfect and whole, free from cancer and diabetes and hip problems and back problems and the common cold. Doesn't that sound amazing? Oh, yeah, sinless. Doesn't that sound amazing if your friends were sinless for all of eternity? I want to be a part of that community. It's more than just this life, it's more than just here and right now. Our hope is actually for eternity. And the news gets even better. I feel like an infomercial. Wait, there's more. It's not just that we can experience new life today. It's not just that you and I will rise in eternity, but it's that God has a plan to actually recreate the entire cosmos and we'll be united with him in a new creation. Have you noticed that there are a lot of things in the world that are broken and wrong and messed up? I actually think that's the one thing that all humanity can agree on is that things are messed up. Things are not as they should be. Something is wrong. Something is broken. But what God has promised is that he is actually in the process of remaking the entire world. There's a beautiful vision right at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest friends, has this vision. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Can you guys imagine a future, a world free from war, free from genocide, free from oppression, and racism, and sexism, free from political election years, right? Amen? Can you imagine this, this new creation, the no more mourning or crying or, or pain or death anymore because God is not just in the business of remaking us inside our hearts. He's not just in the business of resurrecting us as individuals. He is in the business of resurrecting the entire universe. This is as big of a claim as I could possibly make. So I hope at this point, you're asking the question, well, how do we get in on this? What does this mean? How do, I, how do I join myself to Jesus in this way? And let me say two things about this. First, in that verse that we read in Romans, he says, if we are united with him in a death like his, then certainly we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. The first thing you need to understand is that we are united with him by being united with his death. And that means repentance and Faith. We're united with him in his death, repentance and faith. See, the, the good news is that we can be forgiven. The good news is that we can have eternal life. The bad news is we have to start there. We have to start with the bad news that we've all sinned. The Bible is absolutely clear that there is not one single human being living that hasn't broken God's law in some way. You know what sin is? Sin is doing things you ought not to do. How many of you have done things you shouldn't have done? Be honest. This is a church. You have to. How many of you, the Bible would say, sin is not doing good things that you know you should do. Uh-oh. How many of you have not done good things that you know you should do? The Bible would speak about sins with our mouth. The book of James in particular talks about how our tongue is like an unquenchable fire. We use our mouths to tear people down. Anybody ever sinned with your lips? Sinned with your words? Oh, the Bible talks about sins of the thought life. The Bible talks about sins of the motive. How many of you know our motives can be really messed up. You can do a really good thing from a really messed up motive. The Bible calls that sin. And when we see that our sin caused the death of Jesus, it ought to lead us to a place of repentance, brokenness. Repentance means simply a change or a turn. God, I am sorry that I have sinned against you. I, I admit that I've broken your law. I admit that I've I've stood against you with my middle finger raised to the sky saying, no thanks, God, I want to be in charge. I want to live life on my terms, not yours. But there's, there's good news even in his death because a minute ago I said that in one sense, Jesus' death wasn't really all that remarkable. He died the death of a common criminal. But that's only from a human perspective. The divine perspective is that on the cross, Jesus was dying in our place, a, a death and a punishment that we deserved because of our sins. That God was not content to leave us alone in our rebellion and in our folly. He said, I will forgive you of your sins. The Bible would speak of our sins as being like a great debt. I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but how many of you have known the crushing weight of debt? Just struggling to catch up and the bills keep getting bigger and the bills keep getting higher and no matter how much you pay and how much you struggle and how much you try, it's just not getting any better. The Bible would say that our sin is like that before God, but God was not content to leave us in a place of spiritual debt, and on the cross, Jesus' death paid it all. Done. There's an old gospel song. We're actually gonna sing it today. It says, the old account was settled long ago. The record's clear today because he washed my sins away. And so we get this resurrection life, this eternal life, by being united with him in his death through repentance and then faith, saying, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you that you're loving. I trust you that you're good. I trust that you died in my place. I trust you that you can bring me to to, to resurrection life in you. And then the second way we gain this life is by following him as disciples. And the first step of that is baptism. The first step of of a disciple's life is to be baptized. Baptism is a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful uh, uh, object lesson, if you will. Because in the waters of baptism, we see that the the sinfulness that we have is washed away. Just like water cleanses the body of dirt, so Jesus' blood cleanses our soul from sin. And when we go down under the water as disciples, we're identifying with Jesus' death. We're identifying with judgment. We go down under the water, being reminded that Jesus was buried in the ground for three days. And when we come up out of the water, it's a reminder that that he didn't stay dead, but he was raised into newness of life. And when you and I come up out of the water, it's a reminder that Jesus has now done a miracle inside of us and we're brought to new life. This is a way that God ministers his grace to us. For all of you who have been baptized, there's tremendous grace in experiencing it. But even for those of you today who are just watching others get baptized, your faith will be strengthened, won't it? This is a way that God ministers his grace to us. And so I want to invite anyone today who's not taken that step, that first step of obedience as a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, to get baptized. I'll explain a little bit more about what that looks like in just a moment. Let me me simply say this Jesus has been raised. And if Jesus has been raised and everything is different, everything is new, and we should seek above all else to be united with Him. Let me ask you four questions briefly in closing. First of all, do you believe that the resurrection happened? This is the starting point. Do you believe that this actually took place? Number two, because of that, do you believe that all of Jesus' claims are true? It's not just that Jesus raised from the dead, but he made all sorts of claims. Do you believe that his claims are true, that he can forgive sin, that he can raise you to eternal life? Number three, are you united with Christ in his death and resurrection? Have you repented of your sin and, and placed your faith in Jesus saying I'm going all in, I'm putting all my chips in the middle of the table with Jesus. And number four, have you been baptized? I'd actually even like to just take a moment right now before we go into our time of response to even just pray a prayer. I would invite you all to, to, to bow your heads with me. I'm gonna pray this prayer. If you're someone who is, is not a Christian, if you've never really trusted in Jesus, repented of your sin and, and trusted in him, then I would invite you to pray this prayer along with me. You, you don't have to say these exact words. God is not particularly uh, concerned with your articulateness. He's not concerned with you being uh, flowery language. What he really wants is your heart. He wants your sincerity. And so let me just pray this prayer and invite you all to join with me in this. God, I come to you today and I admit that I am a sinner, that I have not done things I should and I've done things I shouldn't have. I've sinned with my, my words. I've used my tongue to tear people down. I've sinned with my thoughts. I've harbored bitterness or unforgiveness or jealousy or covetousness. God, even my motives have been messed up. I've tried to do good things so that people would recognize me or see me as something special. And God, I wanna come to you today and repent of my sins. I wanna ask you to forgive me, to wash me clean. I wanna be united with Christ. I wanna be joined with him so that in his death, I can find my forgiveness and in his resurrection, I could find new life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me your spirit, give me forgiveness and let me follow Jesus as a disciple for the whole rest of my life. And pray this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. If you're someone who's prayed that prayer maybe for the first time today and meant it, would encourage you, we have some pastors and some other leaders out in the lobby. They'd love to talk with you, love to pray with you, and hear what it is that God's doing in your heart. For the rest of us now, we're gonna enter into a, a time of response and we're gonna respond in a couple of ways. The first way we're gonna respond is through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. And so I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come forward now and collect the offering. Let me just say a couple things briefly about giving, especially for those of you who are our guests. We we believe that giving is to be done as worship. And we believe that giving is to be done as an act of worship to God and that God loves a cheerful giver. So uh, please don't feel any guilt or pressure to give. This is something we're gonna do as worship to God. It's also something not done to earn God's love, but just to respond to the love he's already given us. So if you would like to give, you're welcome to, but, but no pressure on that. Um, if you don't carry cash or checkbook, there's some ways to give online on our website or uh, text to give, and that number is there on the screen. Also, we're going to do baptism. You guys excited to see some people get baptized? I know we have a number of people registered and signed up to get baptized. If you want to go out there and start getting changed right now, you're welcome to go. For the rest of you, let me give a little bit of baptism instruction. Maybe you you showed up today and you thought, I wasn't planning on getting baptized. Um, Well, that's okay because Jesus was planning on you getting baptized, and we're ready for you. So... The instructions are simple. Number one, repent of sin, place your faith in Jesus. That's like a mandatory first step, okay? Uh, we don't want anybody getting, ba- anybody getting baptized today just because they think they should or because grandma said you have to. Uh, this is a, about your personal faith in Jesus. I want you to go to the lobby, talk with one of our leaders, let them pray with you. Then get a change of clothes from a volunteer. We've got a private, secure place where you can get changed. And then, it's as easy as this, get baptized. So easy, we'd love to baptize you proclaiming Jesus' death and his resurrection for you. And then number five, everybody cheers, right? Because we love to cheer and celebrate the fact that, that Jesus is saving people. Let's, let's practice one right now. Ready? So boom, they just got baptized. Go. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. And we're gonna sing and we're gonna celebrate. We're gonna sing songs led by the wait staff from the Cheesecake Factory here um, in the... Uh... <laughs> I like the outfits, guys. It's good. Um, they're gonna lead us in... <laughs> I came to me in the first service. I'm sticking with it all day. I'm not changing, okay? We're gonna gonna sing songs about Jesus' resurrection and the joy that we have in him because of him bringing dead things to life. So if you're gonna go get baptized, head on out to the foyer now. For the rest of you, please stand up. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time of singing in response. Father God, we thank you that you are in the business of bringing things that are dead back to life. I thank you that you started with your own son, Jesus. I thank you that you continue that work today in our hearts, bringing our spirits to life. I thank you that you will continue that in the future uh, when we all experience the resurrection of the dead. And I thank you, God, that one day the entire world will be made new and renewed. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. God, for anyone who is, who is uh, still contemplating this idea of following Jesus, I pray, God, that you would do a work in their heart and they would see just how good and loving our Jesus is, and that they would be drawn to him in their hearts, and God, want to follow him, want to respond with baptism. And God, for the rest of my brothers and sisters here who are already Christians, who are followers of Jesus, I pray you would strengthen our faith and help us to seek to be united to Jesus in even greater measure. We pray all of this in the strong and resurrected name of our Savior, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. amen. Church, let's respond with singing and celebrating now.